your love, your tenderness, your kindness, your faithfulness. We do not take you for granted. We lift up our hearts unto you tonight. We bless your name. We embrace you. We thank you. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for the grace to afflict our souls as we seek your face. We thank you for the revelation of who you are. And we bless your name for your word that's about to come to us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are most welcome. Take your seats. Hallelujah. It's been a wonderful journey since Monday night. This is the fourth day and we are now on John chapter 4. I have so much to cover tonight so I will not have the time to review what we've done up to this moment. But let's just dive straight into the word of God and see what God has to say to us tonight. My expectation, my prayer each night is that we come to a greater revelation of who Jesus is throughout this time. Because when we all come to know him in a deeper and intimate way, everything that we are seeking and looking is found in him. Jesus plus nothing. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Now, just so we understand why Jesus made this move, when the Pharisees knew, or at least they perceived or thought, that Jesus had baptized more disciples than John, or that he was baptizing people, period, the alarm went significantly up. And that triggered a cautionary response from the Lord Jesus. This is important that we get this. First of all, let me give you the background why baptism was so critical to them. The Jews, even till today, Judaism, do baptize as well. If a Christian or a Muslim or anybody wanted to become a part of the Judaism, they would take them through a sacrifice much similar to what happens in the day of Moses, and thereafter be water baptized. When a person has completed those steps, you become accepted in Judaism, but they take it very, very seriously. They call it a rebirth, and for them, it is a literal, in their mind, rebirth. So much so, if a person converted to Judaism, they reckon you as a, such a new creation to the degree that you can now marry your mother, your sister, or your daughter. Because they're saying you never existed. And therefore, whatever relationship you had up to that moment is canceled and on. That's how significant it is to them. As absurd as that may sound to you and I. So for them, when they heard that Jesus is baptizing, and they are supposed to be the uh, highest echelon of the Jewish society, it became a serious threat for them. Now, the point for you and I that we should see from here is Jesus could have forced the issue. He could have remained in the territory, kept on doing what he was doing. But he looked at the risk and he looked at his goal and mission and said, it's not worth it. In other words, 
he chose his battle wisely. And many of us can learn from that. Everything that's happening around you or to you or in your relationships do not warrant your opinion. There are some things that are happening that you just see, you know it, and you just keep on moving. You save your battle for another day. You save the battle for when it really counts, when it really matters. So here Jesus is taking his stand, his position. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the salvation of the whole world. But the Bible says in John chapter 4 verse 3, that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Now, in verse 4, it says, it goes on to say that he needs must go through Samaria. And for us to understand that, you need to understand the geographical layout in the time that Jesus was ministering. He's living where? He's living from Judea going to Galilee. Judea is in the south. Galilee is in the north. In order for him to go from the south to the north, he must need to go through Samaria. Samaria was in the dead center. Now, why is this important? Why did the Bible put this in the scripture? Why, what, what, what relevance is this? It is relevant because you need to know to the Jewish mind of that time, they would have done anything to avoid going through Samaria. In fact, what they would normally would have done is, they are in the south, they are going to the north, they first go to the east, transverse around Samaria, and then go on to Galilee. Because there was such an enmity that existed among the Jews and the Samarians, it's a no-go. The Samaritans were, how can I describe them? They, you see, when Israel disobeyed God, God allowed the southern part of Israel to be, cap, to, to be held in captive by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. The northern part of Israel uh, was attacked by Assyria. So what they did was they took the people out of the northern part of Israel and then all the other places where they had conquered brought them into that part of the country, which Samaria was a very prominent uh, city in the place, in the, in the country, in the northern part of the country. All the other nations where they had conquered, they brought all those guys into Samaria, into that part of Israel, and they now commingled with the captives, with the, with the people that were not taken away out of Israel. So over time, they imported the religion, they imported the culture, and they were co-mingled with the original Jews, and instead of, remain, instead of retaining the pure Jewish blood, they became what they call Samaritans. So for the rest of Israel, they were an abomination. They hated them. They despised them. They were rejected. They were ostracized. They were outcast. So for an average Jew, Samaria was a no-go area. Now, you need to appreciate the wisdom of Jesus. Can you address this mic, please? I'm hearing, I'm hearing uh, like an echo. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to appreciate the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 1.8 when he was given the Great Commission. When he was sent to them, that you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. If he had started that commission, be my witness in Samaria, the Jews that were listening to him and said, this man is mad, this is a no-go, we are going nowhere. Because for them, that was just a no-go area. Amen? So, let's keep on reading. In verse 5, John chapter 4, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Shechem, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat 
thus bide he well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the, I like the original King James because it carries a, a meaning that I don't want to be lost here. On the original King James, it said he sat on the well. Big difference. Sat on the well. Think of this. The well is sitting on the well. First of all, you are traversing a territory that is a no-go for a Jew. He will, he will have stood out like a sort of, I mean, conspicuous, sixth hour, meaning 12 noon, broad daylight. And this particular well was a renowned well that Jacob gave to his son. So everybody in Samaria knew this well as Jacob's well. Here's Jesus. He's coming uninvited to Samaria. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. And you get to Samaria at noon. And you chose Jacob's well and you sat on it. <laughs> if you've been following what we've been saying, what is he doing in heaven today? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. What does sit denote? What does, what does it mean to sit? Rest. So it was sending a message that the well has come. And that from this moment forward, it is a finished work. All of those who are coming to drink, drink, get water to drink in that well is saying by implication, you will never have to thirst again if you receive the well that's sitting on top of a well that you are living. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus, the rest of God, sat on the well, thereby implying that rest had come because the work was finished. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, talks about how with joy we draw from the wells of our salvation. So Jesus here, sitting on this well, was sending a message. So, here we are. 12 noon, verse 7, John chapter 4. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. A woman. First of all, in that culture, it was most unlikely that you would find a woman drawing water in the midst of the day. They do it early in the morning or late in the evenings, but hardly ever in daytime. Okay? But the woman that we are looking at here is a very peculiar woman. It's not just your average woman. There was a reason for which she would not come to draw when the other women were drawing. She had a bad reputation in the community. Therefore, she wanted to avoid any gossip, any gossips, any ridicule, any persecution. So she chose a time when it would be most unlikely that any other woman would be there. Secondly, in order to appreciate this Jesus of which we are talking about, you must understand that for the Jews, and in particular for the rabbis, and even most particularly the Pharisees, they never speak to women in public. Not with their wives, not their daughters, much less a stranger. So much so that when they're walking on the streets and they saw their wife coming in the other direction, you just ignore, you just pretend as if you never saw them. Because, in fact, this is, this is, this, 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 you can see this or read this in so many commentaries. It was not unlikely that the real selective Pharisees, when he saw a woman on the streets, would close his eyes. And many of them they called the bruised and the bleeding. Why? Because with the eyes closed, this guy is still walking, and he runs to <laughs> That's how ridiculously sanctimonious they are. Close his eyes just so he, he, don't, he doesn't get tempted, he doesn't get lost in his heart, he doesn't want to look at the woman, so he just closes his eyes and he keeps on walking. 
So now, I, I'm, te- I'm giving you this background so you can appreciate the fact that Jesus entered into a dialogue with a woman. He knew it was a taboo. He knew it was a no-go. It was bad enough that he was found in Samaria where most respectable, quote-unquote, Jews or rabbis, teachers, prophets, would have avoided. He didn't avoid it. He faced it head-on, but not only that, sat on the well, and the woman came. So to this woman, he says, give me a drink. Whoa! What? Did I just hear what I just heard? From that woman's perspective, remember, she's been abused by men. Now she comes to fetch water, trying to avoid other women. And a man starts to talk to her. But in particular, this is a Jewish man. So you have to wonder if she thought this was going to be a hit. Because that's what she's done all her life. She's been hit by men all her life. So she immediately said to Jesus, John chapter 4, verse 8 says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, which that was a convenient thing that Jesus told those guys. Just send them, hey, you guys go buy some food. Because had they remained there, Jesus would have been hindered in doing what he's doing. Their comments, their body language, what? Are we saying this? Is this for real? Is he talking to this woman? Is, is she not the same? I mean, they would have asked a 900,000 questions for which the man would not be able to do what he was trying to do, okay? So, verse 9. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew that gift of God, and who it is who who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. Jesus is saying, Woman, you have no idea. Today is your divine day. You have no clue. Destiny is knocking on your door today. If you have the perception to see who is standing before you. I'm asking you for a drink. Not because I'm thirsty. But I'm actually asking you because I'm trying to open you up for something I want to give you. If you need the gift of God and who it is who's talking to you. Abba, this person talking to you has within him a well. Bigger than the well that you come into. Amen? Amen? So, The conversation goes on. Um, Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now, I think here in this conversation, Jesus is showing you and I the very simple ways of engaging people in personal evangelism. That's what's happening. John chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God that come. To take away the sins of the world. John chapter 2, we saw him clean out the temple. Why? Because they were desecrating it, because the house of God should be a house of prayer for all nations. John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So, chapter after chapter after chapter, we are seeing the focus that even though Jesus does this or does that, he never lost track of his mission on earth. He never lost track of his purpose. So now, he said, I must need to go through Samaria. Does he not know the history of Samaria? Does he not know what's going on there? This woman coming there at 12 noon, was it a coincidence? No. He knew 
that this woman is a reject, an outcast, a woman that, that the, the, the community has a prejudice against, and Jesus had an appointment, a divine appointment, to change her destiny, to change her reputation, and to give her a new lease of life. So when the woman came, he, didn't, he just didn't say, you need to be born again. No. He engaged her. He began to talk to her about things about non-threatening. And these are things that you and I can learn from. Because we see people, we want to, engage, we want to share with them. And the first thing we do is find a big Bible and knock them on the head, you need to be born again. They have no idea what you're talking about. But he started from a point where the woman can relate. Give me some water. That opened her up for conversation. He knew where he was going all of the time. He never lost focus of his goal in engaging the woman. So Jesus here is showing us simple steps in engaging people for evangelism. Amen? Now, so, after Jesus told him that he would become a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life in her, oh no, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Mm. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Now this is huge. Jesus threw a debate, told the woman what's available, and the woman's response indicated that she was open for what Jesus had to offer. Please follow what Jesus did next. He knew that she was open. Because she said, give me this water so that I don't have to come here again to ever fetch water. Good. This is exactly where I want you. But before I can give it to you, I need to get you to the point of conviction. You are open. I see you are open. But I have to get you to see the condition that you are in now. I have to get you to see where you are coming from so you can get a bearing as to where I am taking you. Jesus said to her, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, look at what happened. The woman said, give me the water. Give me this stuff. It's as if Jesus just put that on the side and said to her, go call your husband and come here. We're talking about water. Go call your husband and come here. Let me say, share this with us. Okay, let, let me go on for a minute. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. Let me, let, let me just stop there for a minute. The reason we do not see enough manifestation of the gifts of the spirit is because we don't engage unbelievers enough. Remember I told you last night or night before about the gifts, about the miraculous, the signs and the wonders, that they always come to lead the way to salvation, always come to point to Jesus so people can accept him. Jesus is talking to this woman. The woman is open. She's ready. But Jesus needed to bring her to a point of conviction so he can close the deal. So what did they do? The gift. The word of knowledge. Go get your husband. A word of knowledge is a supernatural ability of God that allows you or me to get information about something that we will not otherwise not know. Go get your husband. The woman said, I'm not married. I said, yeah, Jesus said, you, yeah, you said it right. You're right, you're not married. Now, please follow Jesus' wisdom. So, number one, understand that as you're talking to unbelievers, expect the supernatural ability of God to come upon you to say something to them that you will have no way of knowing except God reveal it. It has to be done by faith. God is not going to send you a, te- a text. He's not going to send you an email or a Twitter. 
when you are standing before a person that does not know God, you are asking God, God, is there anything you can share that I can share with this guy to let them know that I know I have your mail, you, know, you have their mail? God will do it. Because he's not a spiritual person. That's what he did here. But more importantly, in John 1, 17, the Bible says, the law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want you to miss that all through these passages. Through this book of John. Consistently, you're going to see how Jesus uses grace and truth together. All, all, all the way through. Notice what happened here. You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. Grace and truth. Say grace, grace. and truth. Say grace, grace. and truth. Jesus brought conviction upon this woman without condemnation. When the woman said, I have no husband, what was the first thing that came out of Jesus' mouth? You have well said. Affirmation, not condemnation. You have well said. What was the last thing he said? In that you spoke truly. Oh my goodness. If we will take these simple practical principles, it will change your relationships. You have well said, in that you spoke truly. He did not say to her, husband number one, Pete, what happened between you and Pete? Did you find out here? He didn't say, okay, no, husband number two, Jerry. What, okay, tell me, what happened? What, five husbands. Okay, what happened between you and Jerry? Some of us will have got bunked down in the legalism, in all, trying to get into her business, find out what happened. You'll be married five times. You, don't you know you carry the baggage from first marriage to second marriage? We give the salmonette on all of that. Was Jesus concerned about that? Not in the least bit. And many of us hide under the guise and say, I'm speaking the truth in love. Come on. Even the Pharisees can do better than that. Because in that same chapter, in Ephesians, chapter 4, where it talks about speaking the truth in love, the verses before that says, we have been given the measure of grace. So before you open your mouth and speak truth in love, you better have some grace. That grace is what allows you to speak the truth in love where the grace allows to be received. You just don't speak truth. Truth alone will do us no good. Zero. Zero good. It will nail you. There's a reason for which God said Jesus came, he brought grace and truth. Not grace alone, no. Not truth alone, no. But both grace and truth. And that's what you saw here. Yes. This woman definitely had, has had a terrible life. No doubt. But Jesus, with grace, you can almost see the tenderness in the way he spoke to her about that situation. Now, the only reason he went there was to help the woman see that apart from the world that's talking to her, yes. apart from the Christ, apart from the Son of God, apart from Jesus Christ, if she continued to come to this world, she'd just be multiplying husbands. So he just wanted to bring her to a point of acknowledgement. You've had five and the one you are with is not even your husband. He has not even made a commitment to you. He has not found you deemed to make a covenant, to enter into covenant with you. Why are you still hanging there? You almost can hear that in this language. But he did it with decency, honor, dignity, 
where the lady did not have to have to feel beaten down than she already was. Yes. That's our problem. Husbands to their wives. We speak truth with no grace. Wives to their husbands. Truth with no grace. And we do not know when to pick a fight and when to let things go. We want to iron it out. We debate it. Argue it. Truthfully with no grace. And you're wondering why houses are splitting. Truth alone will not work. Grace and truth. Don't miss it. Grace and truth. And you can see this consistently in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Consistently. When he caught the woman in adultery and brought her to him, he didn't just say, what did you do? Why did you do it? How long did it last? He didn't ask any of those questions. The Bible said he was just writing on the ground. Why was he doing that? Showing her some grace. Showing her some grace. Gave her some room. Accommodation. And after all those guys had left one by one, all those Pharisees and hypocrites, he now said to her, go and sin no more. That was the extent of his counseling to the woman. To show you the power of good over evil. To show you the power of grace over legalism. He did not have to take her to a seminar on fornication and adultery. Go and sin no more. I'm sure in that woman's head, those words were ringing. Because she knew she was in trouble. Her sin will have constituted death penalty. She knew those guys wanted to destroy her. But Jesus' grace just said, go. But don't do this anymore. And you see, when he made those pronouncements, the power and ability to carry that was in it. If she believed it, then she was free. And that's what Jesus is offering us right now. Ah, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm getting so excited. I've got 20 more minutes. Okay. So, Verse 19, John chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Come on. No, I I really, I I, I, I perceive you are a prophet. Because this is the truth. I know this in my own personal experience. Every need, whenever you come to God's presence, in fellowship, in worship, in hearing, in speaking, they pay off. They pay off. And you see this in Jesus' life himself. In the meantime, verse 31. His disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. There is a way in which the presence of God and the serving of God fills you up. You you are not hungry at all. You are so consumed by your love and your fellowship until nothing else matters. Jesus was hungry at the beginning, but because he got into ministry, doing something for God, with God, they brought food and said, I'm not hungry. My meat is to do the will of God and to finish the work that is given me. If it's so for Jesus, it can be so for you and I. Ah, okay. Verse 35. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers food for eternal life. But he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Bottom line here is Jesus is challenging all of us to get busy in harvest field. Now, when Jesus said the field is already white for harvest, you may want to ask yourself, what field? And the answer is very simple. Samaria. Samaria. Again, again, 
This is so true, even in my own, in my own experience. I see it. What do I mean by Samaria? Who are the rejects around you? Who are the outcasts around you? Who are the despised around you? Who are the ostracized among you? Who are the people that you know that people just have a way of downing? Those are the field that is wide for harvest. Nobody wants them. They know it. You know it. God knows it. God is saying, listen, those are the candidates. They are already ready. They are vulnerable already. They are just looking for someone to say, you are accepted. We don't have to scratch our face or our head to try to find out who is ready to be plugged, who is ready to come to the kingdom of God. All you have to think is look around you. Who are those people that people don't like? The lowly, the rejects. And Jesus himself knew this because he himself was a rejected one. The stone that the builders rejected has now become their chief cornerstone. He knew that. And I'm saying this to us. If you really want to enter into rest this year, cooperate with God. Let God use your mouth to tell his story. Look out for those who are downtrodden. People that are created in the image and the likeness of God. People for which God died. Who is just waiting for somebody to tell them the good news. The news that's so good to be true, yet it is true. About how God loves them. Okay. Look at verse 39. Let's, let's do this quickly. And many of the Samaritans that, of that city believed in him. Now this is, this next verses are critically important. They believed in him. Remember we've been saying this from day one? That the key is believe. Just notice how many times you're going to see that in the book of John. They believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Can you imagine that? You guys have no idea what, what just happened. Let me tell you how the Jews look at the Samaritans. They say to eat bread with the Samaritan is worse than eating the flesh of a swine. Now, if you know anything about the Jews, pork is no go. But they are saying that even pork is almost better than sitting down and eating with Samaritan. Oh, yeah. So much so on the day when God spoke to Peter and showed him uh, this sheet with sheets with swine in it. He said, it's unclean. I can't touch it. You know, I'm a, hey, I'm a Jew, dude. Do you understand who I am? I can't go there. But for them, they rather eat pork than be with a Samaritan. So without understanding, Jesus sat down there with two days. Send message to the Pharisees in headquarters. I'm here. Two days. I'm going to eat with them, sleep with them, talk with them, fellowship with them. Two whole days. He broke the mold and just tore it to pieces. And that's what some of us must be willing to do for God. Take giant strides, giant steps, do mighty great things where if God don't deliver you, you will not be delivered. But the thing is, he will deliver you. Because that's how faith we is. Verse 41. A minimum believed because of his own word. They said to the woman, now we believe not because of what he said for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Wow, let me just run because I, I've got to finish this. Verse 43. Now after two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. So he's going back to Galilee now. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Look at verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Did you see the difference? 
In Samaria, they believed him. In Galilee, they received him. Received meaning, oh, we've heard of you. You're the miracle worker. Come, 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 come. Come and perform the miracle. Yeah, you're the miracle worker. Come, come here, come here. They didn't believe in him, no. They wanted the goods he can deliver, but they did not believe in him. If we made an announcement that we're going to have a prophet here on Sunday that's going to read people's mail and tell them about everything, this place will be packed. You're going to have to put seats in the parking lot. Why? People are not after God. They want to hear something that makes them feel good. They are Galileans. They received him. But the Bible was clear to say because they've heard of the things he did, not because of what he said. May God help you and I that we just don't receive him, but we believe him. Now, you must understand how difficult this must have been for Jesus. He's coming from a territory among the Samaritans where it was wide open revival. People were believing and just happy to hear his word and he comes back home. And all he wanted, come on, show us a miracle. Multiply the loaves. Raise the dead. Open the blind eyes. He says, a prophet is not without honor. Now, let's close this thing out. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you by no means believe. His goal was believing. That was Jesus' goal, to get us to the point of believing. At this point, I must say to us, there are three levels of faith. Level one, no faith. Level two, little faith. Level three, great, great faith. You need to find your own level tonight. No faith meaning you just don't believe that. Little faith means like a yo-yo. Every now and then, you don't believe. Great faith means God said it, you latch onto it. You're an early adapter. You grab it. You hold onto it. Okay? So Jesus said, well, you guys, you just want to see signs. The nobleman said to him, verse 49, come down before my child dies. In other words, Jesus, all this grandma you're speaking, listen, my son is dying. Just come, 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 come. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, we need to, I want to ask you to compare what happened at this end here with the story of Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 and 10. In both instances, in the instance we just read in John chapter 4, the man was a nobleman, which means royalty. High, upscale, very wealthy, very well to do. But because he was at a point of desperation, he needed Jesus to touch his son. He came. But notice his request when he came. Jesus, come to my house and heal my son. He's dying. Contrast that with the centurion, Matthew chapter 8. He just went to Jesus and announced a need. He did not implore Jesus to come to his house. Neither did he even ask him to do anything. He just said, my servant lies paralyzed with the palsy. End of story. I'm closing to now by saying this to you. Be careful what directive you are giving God when you're praying. The centurion simply presented the case. This is what's happening. 
He did not invite Jesus to his house. Did not command Jesus to come to his home to come and heal the guy. And then Jesus, on healing his, his, the situation, the need, said, I am coming to your house. Jesus volunteered himself to come. Ah, the man said, Chief, this one is too much. I know what authority means. I'm a man in authority. I tell people to come, they come. I tell them to go, they go. Therefore, you do not need to come to my house. All you need to do is speak the word. Send that word. Because I know when you do so, it will happen. Jesus was so amazed. He openly declared he has never found such faith in Israel. What are we saying to God in prayer? Now, our friend in John chapter 4, he had little faith when he came. But by the time he interacted with God, thank God, his position changed. He came with a request and a demand. And you will see that Jesus, it was, it was, he did not do it grudgingly because he would not have done that. But he expressed, wow, you guys, that's all you want, signs? It, at, at least as much, he said that out. So it, it, it's not me, it's not my word, just the sign, that's all you want? Okay, all right, I will oblige you. Because I know where you are. Hebrew legend says this about this guy in John chapter 4. That after Jesus said, go home, your son lives. You know, the Bible said he believed Jesus' word. If that was you and me, your son was dying, Jesus gave you a word, what would you do? Would you return home? Yes. It's not a rocket science. Jeff is looking at me like trying to read my eyeball. Then see if I say, no. If, if in a normal situation, you, you get an encounter like that, you return home and make sure that your son is well. Legend says, this guy so believe what Jesus said. He continued on his journey for a while. And then, as he returned, his servants met him on the way. And that's when he asked the question, when did he start mending? And they told him, and he recognized it was the same hour when Jesus spoke. What's the point I'm making? This guy has so much, he came with little faith. But by the time he encountered Jesus Christ, he was so strengthened in his faith that when Jesus spoke the word, he did not, he was no longer desperate. He was so settled in the word of God. Ah, forever, oh Lord, that word is forever settled in heaven. He was so settled in the word. He said, yes, I can, I can go to the restaurant and eat a little bit first. Let, let me go finish what I, what, what I set out to do before he, rushed, before he went home. His disposition showed he believed the word and he expected the word to come to pass. Where are we tonight? Where are we? Because everything is available. To the degree that we believe the word of God. Just the word. The word. That's it. Everything we've been reading. They believe the word. Whether you're a Samaritan, nobleman, centurion, the issue is do you believe the word? And when we believe the word, there will be corresponding actions. Not something I'm doing, oh my gosh. Let me just throw this out quickly. And we need to close. We need to close. Let me just show this very quickly. I know it's 830. Wow. John chapter 4. When he came back to, in John um, 444. Actually, John 443 and 44. And the point here is, why did Jesus return to Galilee? Why? Why? You can find the answer in Matthew chapter 4, where the Bible quoted Isaiah saying that Jesus will also go to Galilee, the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. The reason I'm bringing this up is to help us understand that when you and I read the word, we should not be reading it just as something we read, 
We should not just be hearers only. That's the word. In Matthew chapter 4, this is what it says. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that he might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, have seen a great light, da 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 So the point I'm making here is, Jesus, every time he opened this book, and he saw something that was written about him, he did it. He just did not read the word for predictions. He read the word for directions. He read it, he saw it, ah, this is what I'm supposed to do. Step out and dig it. And God honored it. That's the difference. We read it, we get mental assent, we do nothing with it. I'm saying to us, when we read what God has said, and you allow God to process that in prayer in your heart, then you need to step out. Somebody said, but pastor, if I step out, nothing happens. What, what, what do I do? What if something happens? Why are you thinking negatively that something will happen? Why? Why can you think what will happen if it happens? You know, our problem, we spend too much time in the outer court. Sin consciousness is polluted our thinking where we're always thinking negative. Something bad will happen. This will not come to pass. Da, da, da. That's because of the sin consciousness in mind. When you spend time in God's presence, you won't think about that. You only think of possibilities, not limitations. Because that's all that is available in God. Possibilities, not limitations. But when you spend time in the outer court, where sin is being dealt with, all you see is limitation, 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 limitation. Because you are still thinking as a mere man, rather than thinking as a as, as, as son of God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We bless you, Lord God, that you have begun a good work in us. You finish it and perfect it. We honor and we bless you for exploits that we will do in your name. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Good night.